Hello, and welcome to the Homeland Podcast. Step out to find out it's wet and warm, wet and warm. Tra-la-la, 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 tra-la-la. I actually think emergency isn't quite the isn't quite the right framing now. I, I think the right framing is that we have a refugee crisis. Except these are not refugees from another country; they're refugees from our own economy. And when you have a refugee crisis, you don't check the zoning code, right? You put up the tents, and you get the Red Cross there, and you you serve food and you figure out how to return people um, back to, um, you know, a a place where they're more secure. You know, you don't want a permanent refugee camp, but you don't say, um, we think it's not good. We think that that living in a a refugee refugee tent is beneath these people. We, we we, We put up the tent and we take care of the refugees. From 2009 to 2013, Mike McGinn served as the mayor of Seattle. During his time in office, his administration confronted the challenge of homelessness in a variety of public policy venues, from homeless sweeps to aggressive panhandling to housing policy to sanctioned and unsanctioned encampments. With a vantage point that few of us will ever have, Mike offers a candid and insightful look back into the policy challenges that confronted his administration with regards to homelessness and offers several ways that cities can begin to mitigate the crisis in their own backyards. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did recording it. So so one of the ideas that, that I've had is that over the last several decades, whether intentionally or not, we've designed a set of policies, systems, and environments that have placed the most significant impacts from homelessness on, on our collective commons, on, on the public realm. From your experience, just as an observer and from your experience as mayor, am I wrong in that observation or, or is that kind of what we've done over time? Yeah, no, yes, that is what we have done. That is what we've done over time. I mean, we could unpack that a little bit more. Um, yeah, let's do you, that. It's not, it's, okay. Because you, you've been an observer and engaged in politics for a long time. And I think that you've, you've kind of witnessed those, those decisions happen in real time. Well, I, I guess when I hear you say that, what I think about is, you know, we've created a set of circumstances that created homeless, the homeless situation, right? And, and it does impact the public realm. But the big part of the question is who's public realm? And so if you define it more narrowly, it's really impacted the public realm of big cities, you know, or of cities. It's not impacted the public realm of suburban cities or small towns in the same way, Um, although I may not be as knowledgeable or as good an observer, and I do know it's spreading. You know, the other thing we've seen it is the way, I mean, I was shocked coming home from Oregon one time, and it was the rest areas in Oregon were, were, had become places of respite for homeless people, Uh, the the big highway rest areas on I-5. So I guess the reason I'm struggling with the way you framed it is because so much of the debate in the city of Seattle was was being pushed by the business community, the hospitality industry, you know, the Downtown Seattle Association to move the homeless people out of the public realm 
and move them to a place where they wouldn't be seen. Um, so, you know, it's, it, I just am struggling with that frame, framing of it as homeless are being taken care of in the public realm, how homeless are sheltering where they can in the public realm, where they're not being chased away. And oftentimes it's in, it's in bigger cities or in more anonymous places where they can actually achieve that, you know, yeah. in the green belt where nobody goes or, or in Seattle for a long time, it was, you know, under the elevated highway where nobody went, right. uh, you know, or, or in the jungle in Seattle, which was uh, a bunch of green areas, you know, bisected, trisected, dissected by freeways where people otherwise didn't go. Right. Uh, and it, you hardly think of those places as public realm because nobody went to those places. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that what I was trying to get at with that notion of the impacts on public space, um, obviously there's a, there's a significant impact on the people who are experiencing homelessness, but those impacts on public space and, and kind of the pushback that you described from the business community are almost a, a natural response to a, a series of divestments that, that, public the public has made both at the local realm and probably more significantly at the national level um cutting back on on certain spending streams and, and that sort of thing um i know that you know when you were engaged in national politics um as a as a as a aide to the center from oregon you know you were probably watching that those cutbacks happen in real time and then now when when you were serving as mayor of seattle you were kind of seeing how those national cutbacks played out locally. And I think that that's, that's the phenomenon that I was trying to speak, trying to get that well, question. Well, yeah, and there's absolute truth to that. In the Reagan era, you know, what we saw was that we were demonizing poor people. You know, the problem with our economy was the welfare queen with the Cadillac, you know, uh, the, you know, poor people were, were the source of problems. Um, we also saw, as you pointed out, a tremendous reduction of investment in, um, you know, services as well, you know, that, that there was a, an understandable reason to not to, to uh, stop warehousing the mentally ill, but it wasn't matched by uh, the, the same level of investment or, or, you know, how will we deal with those that are mentally ill in the community? That, and, and so that was a piece of it as well. But I, I think there's another side of it, which is kind of from the private sector side. I'm still really and even though I'm pushing back on you on this public realm thing, you've really just gotten me thinking. So uh, as, as I tend to do, I'm, I'm thinking by talking. So let's see where the <laughs> conversation goes. Um, but, but it was also, it, it, you know, we've seen since that time and from before this continual ratcheting down of zoning in cities and suburbs and places which make uh, the single room occupancy hotel or the small the small, you know, the apartment building with numerous small units, illegal. Um, it's just not allowed, and and so the the private and public, the pub, the public realm has been privatized in a way in many places through zoning. Like the only people who can enjoy this public realm in this community are the people can who can afford a, a single family home on a large lot, and. And the public realm here is not available to you if you are lower income. And if you're homeless, you know, the local police officer is going to kindly escort you to the metro bus that takes you to the city center uh, because there is no public realm for you here. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's that it's the idea of 
perhaps public in in quotes, but you know, this conversation that I've had with people who are living on the streets is like, you know, it does not feel like it's a public realm to me. It does not feel like a place where I'm welcome. And I think that what you're pointing out is that not all types of people in that broader category of public, um, by the way that we've shaped our communities, are are feeling at home in all of our rights of ways or all of our parks or, or those types of public spaces. Right, right. And, you know, another example to illustrate the point would be, you know, the rise of malls patrolled by security officers. All of a sudden, your retail center wasn't a public street served by transit. It was a enclosed space uh, surrounded by parking lots. So once again, you know, the the turning of public space, the conversion of public areas into private private areas. Um, and at the same time, you know, this rise in inequality started in the Reagan era. Um, uh, if you go look at national data on this, you know, the stuff that's put out uh, by the federal government, it was arrested or slowed under Clinton and, and Obama, but it wasn't substantively reversed, whereas under every Republican era, it's just shot up yet more. And that's, that's the outcome here. You have people being pushed out of the economy, uh, you know, lower wages, lower benefits on the one side, and matched with that a, a managing of the landscape to, to say that, yeah, you're not welcome here. You know, you're not even welcome to walk down the street. You're not, you're not welcome in these places if you aren't, um, have sufficient resources to afford the housing here. Um, so yeah, it says you got to be getting hit for squeeze from both sides on that one. Yeah, it's it's a really a difficult situation, not only for the people who are, you know, had a medical bill that was late or whatever, for whatever reason, they've lost their housing. But it also puts you at the local level, you as as the former mayor of Seattle, who are having to address kind of the policy ramifications at the local level in, in a pretty tight squeeze as well. As you yes. entered office, what were those? What were those pressures? What were you feeling from various constituencies around the issue of homelessness? Well, I mentioned one already, and that was, you know, the downtown uh, business community, particularly the hospitality industry, really wanted, really wanted the removal of uh, homeless people from, you know, from visibility. Um, small businesses, you know, don't want people sleeping in their doorways. And communities didn't want homeless encampments anywhere near them. Um, so, you know, it was it was an issue primarily of visibility. Um, and where they were visible, there was a call to do something about it. And when I entered office, the primary do something about it were, would be a sweep, you know, a homeless sweep. Remove the homeless people from these areas because they are not allowed here. Um, what's pretty fascinating about this, God, I, the words I'm using here, I mean, these are people who are in really difficult conditions. Um, what we know is that um, at some point, it's unconstitutional to tell somebody that there is literally no place they can lay their head. If, I don't know that people have really grappled with this thought before, right? But if you have the freedom of thought, if you have the freedom of expression, if you have the freedom to travel where you will, all of these are, are freedoms in the United States, how can you not have a freedom to lie down and take a rest somewhere, somewhere? 
right? It's, it's, and, and I think, and I'm not a legal scholar, I'm a lawyer, but I'm not a scholar in this area. I think if you dug down, it's, it's, if you have a right to privacy, right? Like, like the Supreme Court found that when you look at all the other rights, you have a right to privacy. Well, if you have all those other rights, then you must certainly have a right to, when you are exhausted, to lie down and sleep. And here we were in a city where the, the pressure was, yeah, but, but not here. You can't lie down here. You can't sleep here. You can't sleep there. Well, then where can they sleep? And there weren't, there weren't enough shelters. Um, there, there weren't enough affordable places. Um, so that's, that was the, the place we found ourselves in. Um, what I tried to do as mayor was, was um, first of all, and it's interesting how contra controversial it is, allow people to, you know, have regulated encampments in the city. Um, you know, places where they could, could pitch a tent and lie down can, can and, you sketch and the, take their rest. Can you sketch that idea out a little bit? Because I think, you know, a lot of people who might be listening that for this, for example, on the East Coast, might not have a sense of what an encampment is. I think it's a pretty common so, phenomenon on the West Coast. Yeah, so my, 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 my feeling as mayor was really simple, was... Yeah, I understand that there are, there are um, and I think we're getting to what you're trying to get at right from the start of this, which is, you know, that there are places in the city that are preserved for, you know, par parks, as, for example, or um, Westlake Park downtown, which is, you know, really just a square, you know, a public plaza. You know, that, that these are public plazas that have multiple uses, and it's really not okay for that use to be now dominated by people sleeping there. Right, like it's it's meant to be used for the enjoyment of everybody. So there is a reason why you have to enforce the rules about where people sleep. Um, you know, you don't. You know, people. There's a play field in the park, um, or there's a meadow where people want to throw a frisbee. You know, you want those to be open and available to the public because that's that's the rule. I mean, that's that's what it's there for. But if you're going to say people can't sleep there, then where can they sleep? And, and so that was my philosophy as mayor. They got it. There has to be a place for them to go. Um, a lot of the homeless individuals did not want to go inside and sleep in a shelter. Um, one was uh, because of the conditions within the shelter. Another might be uh, they might be separated from a partner. They might be separated from a pet. Um, they, or, or maybe they had, uh, you know, a mental health issue that they, they didn't want to be in that setting, you know, because it, it, it freaked them out. There were a lot of different reasons why somebody might reject a shelter. And in fact, we didn't always have readily available shelter space at any given time. So where can a person go to actually have a little bit of autonomy and liberty, even if it's, and I think that was something that I, I came to understand too, that a tent with a door was a place that was really desirable to people as opposed to being in a very crowded shelter where they were, you know, had to be rousted out at, you know, 6.30 a.m. or something. They couldn't store their belongings during the day. So, so I took the position that um, it was okay to have areas, places in the city where people could pitch a tent with other people. And, and we used the term regulated to mean that uh, there had to be some uh, sense of order, you know, some, some rules that applied to the people sharing the space and it could be self-regulated and whether the provider could, could provide that regulation. Um, and there were a certain number, there was under a, 
a prior uh, cons uh, settlement agreement between the city and homeless providers, when I took office, there were a certain number allowed for a certain number of months at a time, and you couldn't go back to the same places more than once. It was, a, it was an attempt to keep them spread around and, uh, and not let them be in one place too long. And I worked to liberalize those rules and to maybe set up some more permanent places like this. Intensely controversial. Um, and in part of the controversy was no neighborhood wanted one on a permanent basis. Um, you know, another would be the argument was that this wasn't, you know, people deserved better than this. Mm. And they do deserve better, but nobody was providing them better. And this is what they was, this is what these individuals were deciding was best for themselves. Right. So, you know, why not listen to them on this, on this point? Um, my, and in fact, there was one encampment that was uh, very, the most controversial, in which they intentionally set up their camp um, outside of the boundaries of the agreement I described earlier. Like they would just set up and wait to be kicked out. And the reason they did that was because they didn't, um, they thought the rule was unfair and they wanted, they kind of wanted people to confront the plight of the homeless and, and they didn't want to comply with the rules. So I decided I wasn't going to kick them out and that I was going to introduce legislation for a more permanent encampment and that I would also try to make it easier for other encampments to be formed. Um, I had a partial victory in that the rules on encampments were liberalized. There could be more of them. They could stay longer. They could be permanently hosted, for example, uh, by churches. Uh, but the, the trying to set up the more permanent one uh, was defeated multiple times uh, by the council. I would, uh, Nick Licata, a council member, would introduce the legislation. We'd support it. And I think it got, it, got voted down 5-4 several times. Um, but I would keep going back again. Uh, I kind of had a reputation, Bryce, as you well know, because I'd make them vote on it again. That's what I would do. I figured make them vote on two or three times. Maybe they'll change their minds, uh, you know, because we'd let the public pressure build. Uh, by the way, that was considered to be, by the other incumbent politicians, a breach of local political protocol in which no politician should ever try to show up another politician because we all had a shared interest in getting reelected, don't we? And, I, and uh, you know, I just thought that that, that kind of missed the point. I think we're supposed to have a shared interest in, in doing what is right for the public. Um, by the way, one of the council members uh, who voted no repeatedly was uh, defeated in a subsequent election, replaced by a council member who voted yes, Shama Swant, and now there are multiple regulated encampments in the city of Seattle. So uh, I, I kind of sort of won, but I paid a price uh, for doing so as well because I earned uh, the opposition of many of those council members, which uh, played a role in my inability to win election, uh, you know, after four years. Yeah. Um, it, it seems like the, that, that question that you honed in on of, of permanent versus temporary is a really key one in this conversation because people, people have both, both these taboos around people who are experiencing homelessness and the way that we've set up our economic system, most of our collective wealth is embedded in the price of our home. Um, and anything that affects the price of your, one's home is, is you know, an, an affront not only to the person's 
financial stability at the time, but also to intergenerational wealth and being able to pass something on a value to one's kids. Uh, do you understand that perspective? I mean, do, does that have sympathy for, for you? And, and how do you how do you respond to that as a policymaker? Yeah, well, it's first of all, it is what the, the phenomenon you describe is intensely powerful and it is understandable. Um, that because people, because as you pointed out, so much of people's wealth is bound up in their, in the property that they've bought, and it's given them a certain amount of stability. You know, it gives them a, a hope, right, that they'll have dollars in their retirement, and as you pointed out, dollars to pass on to their children. Um, and, and what you see, you know, there's there's one theorist who says that, you know, that's one of the reasons you see such deep opposition to any change because, um, it, and I've seen it too. If it's a well-off neighborhood, they'll oppose. It's just about anything because they're taking a risk that it might be bad. Mm -hmm. uh, what you tend to see in poorer neighborhoods is that they oftentimes um, appreciate an investment in their neighborhood. They would, they would rather see an empty lot turned into some buildings. You know, you don't see, I'm not saying everybody in those neighborhoods do, but you don't see the depth and ferocity of opposition that you will see from more well-off neighborhoods when a change is proposed. Um, there'll be two sides to the debate in those neighborhoods. Some will fear uh, the change. Others will be like, no, it's about time we got rid of that weedy lot and got some people investing in it. Um, so that is that is a real thing and, and an understandable thing. I'm not sure I really have sympathy for it, though, at the end of the day um, because of the, the flip side of it, which is one of the things we're, we've been describing here. You know, for example, another thing we tried to do was, and, and we didn't do it, it, it just happened, um, but then we backed it up, was, you know, one developer discovered that, you know, we had a code that allowed uh, townhouses with that, and, and a townhouse was, was reflected that, that sentiment you were just describing. You know, in, if you're gonna allow a multifamily unit, well, it should look like a house. So we'll let you put up these townhouses, but they, they have the look and feel of single family units. They're just four or six of them all next to each other on the lot. Um, and that's better than an apartment building, which doesn't look as great, right, in, in the minds of people. So it's like this compromise between an apartment building and, and the single family. Well, one developer figured out, oh, well, in this lot where I could build six townhouses, and each townhouse allows eight unrelated people to live in it. Well, I'll just build it so we have 48 units in it. Each unit will have a, um, a bedroom, a, a shower, stall, and toilet, and a shared kitchen. So there'll be eight bedrooms in each townhouse <laughs> and one shared kitchen and one parking space for the, for the townhouse, because that's all that's required under the code. And these started to be marketed under the trade name of apartments or known as micro apartments. And it was all legal under the code as it was written. Um, I remember when the head of DPD, the Department of Planning and Development, came into the office and said, hey, these are what these people are doing. And I think what she was asking me was, um, although she never didn't state it quite that boldly, if you think they're trying to pursue a loophole and you want me to shut them down, let me know. But if you think that I should just say they meet the code because they do meet the code, then you should tell me that too. You know, it was not that blunt, but that is actually kind of a thing that happens when something comes in that 
falls into a gray area or wasn't really what people intended, you know, hey, hey, Mayor, do you want me to act immediately to start revising the law and stopping these, or are these okay? And I said, I think they're great. Let them rip, you know? And there was an amazing pushback from neighborhoods on these micro-apartments. Um, by the way, thousands of units were built in the city. They rented for far cheaper than uh, studios or, or other one-bedroom apartments. Um, they were um, always filled up immediately, and it turned out they were also quite profitable for the developers because they were getting a lot more dollars per square foot. And as I said, the reaction from single-family neighborhoods was really ferocious because they believed it was going to diminish their property values. Hmm. Um, and this is part of the solution to homelessness, just as backyard cottages are, just as apartment buildings are, just as getting rid of uh, parking minimums are. Um, these are all ways in which you know we can bring more housing into the marketplace that can enable more people to get in at more price points. And it's not going to solve it. We're going to have to, uh, for people without means or for very limited means, we're going to have to build subsidized housing um, as the other piece of the solution. Um, but the, that's there's your, there's your answer, right? Allow the marketplace to provide more units, reduce regulations on bringing units to, to, to the market, and uh, try to address inequity by taxing those with means to help support housing for those without means. You do both together, you can actually make a dent. But we prioritize the concerns of homeowners over the diminishment of their pro potential diminishment of the property values because they have more neighbors and the potential inconvenience of parking on the street in front of their house because the new building doesn't have a parking space over you know, the needs of housing the people that are, that are here. So, yeah, I understand it, but I'm not sympathetic because the damage is ultimately too great. And, and you have to, you have to, you know, you have to let, uh, you have to let people have roofs over their heads. You just have to do that. I've heard mayors be described as, as the ultimate pragmatists and, and hearing you early on bashing Reaganomics and then calling for a second ago for market deregulation. I think, I think that speaks to it perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that, I mean, let's just do the math on this. Let's just do the math on this. Like it would be so expensive to tax ourselves to build all the housing that is needed for people that, you know, that, that are find themselves without the money they need. It would be extraordinarily expensive. Why wouldn't we let somebody build a backyard cottage at their own expense and make a little money off it? You know what? You know, and in fact, if you look, you know this as well as I do. Um, Cities—that's what cities do. Every city, you know, <laughs> Pioneer Square was once a you know Seattle's oldest neighborhood was once a probably a collection of wooden buildings, and and. Then they were replaced by bigger buildings, and they were replaced by four and six-story brick buildings. And then one day, you know, there's even the 40-story Smith Tower there. Um, that's what cities do. As 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 more people are added, they 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 grow upwards, they intensify in their uses, and they spread. Um, and what we did was we uh, froze them and said, no, no longer can you have an intensification of uses that reflects the 
um, economic activity going there. But every city went through this process. Um, it's how places are built. So, so recently, uh, kind of after after your time in office, uh, a wave of West Coast mayors here in Seattle, Tacoma, Portland, Los Angeles, uh, even the governor of Hawaii, they issued some type of of homeless emergency declaration. Out, observing it, most of those communities from the outside, it seemed that while it was admirable in the intent, there wasn't the kind of immediate and dramatic follow-up that you would get in a traditional emergency like a like a hurricane or an earthquake or a flood or what have you. I, I know this is an issue that you've been thinking about um, and, and that you appreciated that as a policy tool. How might have you used that emergency powers to affect change and, and to see some of the, the things that you've been talking about happen? Well, it's really interesting because when I saw it happen, I, I thought, wow, I, that's what I should have done, right? I should have declared an emergency because when you declare an emergency, and I did declare an emergency um, once in response to May Day rioting. And one of the things you do is you suspend the normal rules because it's an emergency. And, and of course, I was briefed on, on what we would do in the event of an earthquake. Um, we would issue an emergency, and you just don't go. It's like it's an emergency. We don't have to follow all the bureaucratic rules. We need to immediately address the issues. And um, I thought of this in terms of, emerg of encampments. Right? It's an emergency. Um, let's build, uh, let's build uh, small homes. Let's build tiny homes on, on city property. You can just do it. Um, it's an emergency. Discovery Park, you know, Fort Lawton next to Discovery Park. Let's put people in it. Um, we have buildings there. Uh, we don't have to go through the same EIS process, et cetera. Uh, but, but the reality was that that emergency was being done for public relations purposes. It was being done as a means of goading the federal government to action. It, 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 we weren't indeed treating it like an emergency. Uh, I actually think emergency isn't quite the, isn't quite the right framing now. I, I think the right framing is that we have a refugee crisis, except these are not refugees from another country, they're refugees from our own economy. And when you have a refugee crisis, you don't check the zoning code, right? You put up the tents, and you get the Red Cross there, and you, you serve food, and you figure out how to re return people um, back to um, you know, a, a place where they're more secure. You, know, you don't want a permanent refugee camp, but you don't say, um, we think it's not good. We think that, that living in a, a refugee, refugee tent is beneath these people. We we build we we put up the tent and we take care of the refugees. So I think that's the framing we need to deal with this as and and recognize um, that that's that's the crisis we're facing. And and what what is the role of the federal government? Because I mean, that that's a that's a tall order for cities counties to be to be dealing with as you framed it a, a refugee crisis. I mean that's typically something that is NGOs and, and the federal government. What, what's the role of, of the feds in this conversation? Well, and that, that's part of the challenge that the city's facing because the, like the, the squeeze I described earlier, there's a bunch of things that are, within the, the, that are within the resources of the city, right? We can make it easier for people, you know, we can make it easier for um, a range of housing types to become available. Uh, we can relax our zoning codes to allow encampments and things like that. We can't change from the city level 
we can't change the forces of globalization and inequitable tax policy at the state, at the federal and state levels that are driving the deep inequality in the country. That's something that's beyond our control. So that's the first thing, right, that, that these other places should do. Um, we can call on the federal government to give us money, but I always thought that that was the idea, and this goes back to the emergency declaration, the idea that by declaring an emergency, a bunch of uh, democratically run, democratic cities, and I say democratic meaning democratic party, would all of a sudden receive money from a Congress that was dominated by Republicans who were elected from rural areas um, was, you know, it just wasn't going to happen. The, the, the Republican majorities don't represent cities and they're not going to help cities. So calling on the federal government to do that, you know, was it's just not going to happen. So you have to look to your own resources there. Um, I, I think the good news for cities is that there are more resources now. We Cities are not where they were in the 60s and 70s when white flight hollowed them out and where companies were moving to the suburbs. Um, headquarters are now locating in downtowns. Um, Amazon is downtown. Uh, Warehouser, which moved out to the suburbs, moved back to downtown. Uh, just recently, they want to be in Pioneer Square. Um, cities are once again, as they have been historically, uh, places of great concentrations of wealth and power. So cities have the option to tap into that wealth. They, they have leverage that they didn't have 20 or 30 years ago. Hmm. And they should use it. They should use it. Because the reason, the reason that the headquarters are locating in cities now is not because uh, it's cheap there, and it's not because the parking is easy or the traffic's good. The reason they're there is because that's where the employees are that they need to hire. And, you know, one can argue why that's true, but it is indisputably true right now that the company that uh, sets up on Vashon Island, like K2 did, can't survive. It's got to move to, it's got to move to the, the city. You know, moving to the suburban area federal way doesn't work. If you're Microsoft, yeah, you got your big campus outside of town. They got at least a couple of thousand employees in South Lake Union too now in downtown. They have to come to the city. So this wealth that is created by a uh, culturally vibrant, diverse, well-educated place um, is being that value is being captured by these corporations. But they didn't create it. The people in those places created it. The least we can do is get some of it back and invest it in our own communities. So uh, I, I know you're on the East Coast right now. Uh, I just wanted to see if there was any ideas that you would come across while you, while you're out there that you thought, man, we should bring that back to the West Coast or or something from the West Coast that should be shared on, uh, more broadly on the East Coast. You know, I my head has been so deep in what I'm doing right now that uh, I, I I don't know that I got any good ideas. <laughs> okay. Um, but I I am still, as you can tell, following affairs uh, closely in the city of Seattle. And, you know, it's still, still, it's my home, even though I'm out here for a little bit working. So, you know, I am glad to see that uh, the idea of uh, taxing big businesses to pay for homeless services is now a big deal in the city. And, uh, you know, hope it passes. Um, and I also see younger people and you're seeing, you know, you know, the urbanists are now starting to uh, match up some with the socialists. Um, and 
and socialist isn't a dirty word anymore for the younger generation, you know, they're starting to, to come together to say, um, we do, you know, that, 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 concert, that, that we need to open up our community to allow more housing to be built. And we need to ask those with means to help pay for subsidized housing as well. And you, 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 we got something going on here politically that's new. And uh, you and I were both involved in Great City. And this is something, uh, a nonprofit in Seattle uh, that, well, man, when was that? 2004, five, six, when we were trying to get that launched. And that's what we were talking about, that, that, that mix of uh, focusing on equity, uh, focusing on public space, and focusing on you know, opening up our communities to more people and relaxing our zoning laws to actually allow good places to be built. Um, we're seeing that all come come to fruition now, um, or, or a much stronger political force than the thing we were trying to create then, because as the years have passed, the public demand for these ideas has grown. Absolutely. Mike, thank you for taking some time out of your busy schedule there on the East Coast. And uh, I hope everything keeps on going smoothly for you. And, and thanks for the insights and reflections. Uh, thank you. And uh, look forward to listening to all the episodes of your podcast, Bryce. You're doing great work. Thank you for listening. This podcast is part of the Homeland Project. We invite you to learn more about the project at homelandlab.com. Our work would not be possible without the support of MIG SVR and the Landscape Architecture Foundation's Innovation and Leadership Fellowship. To learn more about the tremendous work of LAF, please visit their website at lafoundation.org. Finally, we want to thank our friends at Yves for the use of their music. You can learn more about the band and find out about their debut album at thesoundofyves.com. <laughs>